So I hope you're finding your way. I really do hope you find your way. <coughs> so settling in to uh, experience that on the surface looks yeah, nothing so difficult about that, surely. Just comes a place, requisites provided, shelter, yeah, okay. Bundle up a bit, it's cold, okay. Find a place in the hall, okay. The chores, okay. So I guess, you know, particularly in this uh, subculture, this is quite normal, you know, retreatants and, you know, modern people in general, Americans, a lot of travelling, migrating from this place to that place, you know, we're in fact we're all migrants all the time now, here am I, on the road, finding my way. And in some ways it's all kind of looks relatively easy, logistics sorted out. Yeah, it takes a bit of time to just get your sleep rhythms and your sleeping place and your right amount of bundling and eating and stuff like that sorted out. But uh, on another level it really takes quite a bit because uh, appearances are deceptive. Just because you bring your body here and put it on the ground on the seat doesn't actually mean your tither is actually grounded yet. It may be, not for me to know. Mm. It may be the case that your chitter is hardly ever grounded, really grounded, or only briefly touch real ground. I imagine that's to a degree, otherwise you'd really be in bad state. What does ground mean? Safety. Don't have to work at it. Given. <coughs> Definitely supports me. Mm. So, is that a physical place? A heart place? An emotional place? place with other people, you find a certain group of people, you feel that. You know, it's not, Chitra is not defined by sense, sensory appearances. It's kind of underlies all the sensory appearances, but it's not defined by them. So, as we all know, we can be sitting, we can be in a city with a million people and feel really alone. What's the matter? Tons of people around you. I just feel, feel isolated. It's just that it hasn't touched ground, hasn't felt safe, hasn't felt this is here for me, I don't have to work here, I don't have to prove anything, I'm right here, that's fine. Safety, no deals need to be made. I don't have to perform for anything. So, but hopefully you all of us find some place some situation, some scenario, some experience, some person we can be with, or where we feel, yeah, this is where it comes to rest. Oh. Let's note that place, it's not a physical place, that may be triggered by a physical place. This is really, really important. It's not a small thing. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something you can tell somebody, okay, you know, you're safe here, you are fine. No, no, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And sometimes it means we have to touch into the place where we don't feel very grounded. Don't feel so utterly, involuntarily, effortlessly welcome. Touch into it. Breathe in and out, find your body. This is your refuge in a way. Loosen and open the body, let the body yield, soften, settle. And that, even that, doesn't necessarily.
necessarily happen overnight. Such a residual holding of oneself. Because when you can't find ground, you have to make it by holding yourself. That gives you some sense of solidity, but it's a contrived solidity. So it's always accompanied by some sense of tightness, tension, anxiety, need to do something in order to feel. It's got to be continually renegotiated everywhere you go. What's the deal here where I can do the things that will make me accepted? How do I do the things that, you know, because nobody tells you <laughs> exactly, you know, so you follow the rules, okay, you do the things that other people are doing, maybe that will do it. That's contrived, I mean, it's not evil, but that's something we probably do as social human beings. So if your degree of acceptance is you won't get directly rebuffed or... So, this is part of the story of Chitta. Uh, Chitta, heart, mind, awareness, spirit. A quality, not an entity. A quality of resonance, of intelligence, of sensitivity that occurs within mind consciousness. It's called the stuff, the dhatu, the property of mind consciousness, which is its ability to be aware, sensitive, responsive, intelligent, and so forth. Intelligent means sensitive, meaning able to respond in skillful ways, in appropriate ways, in tuned ways. Chitta. The story of Chitta is uh, it gets affected by a Ouija, not getting it right, obscurity, fog, uh, blind spots. And so the big story is that it takes on this birth, this embodied form, you know, it comes into this embodied sense, sensory form, this physicality, this sensory form. It hasn't realised, completely realised and opened into limitless freedom. So it's shuttling into this. And, you know, you don't have to think too much about that, but what you know for yourself directly is that you arise, you seem to experience yourself very much in terms of sense contact. We arise in a field of sensory realm. And what that means, most other things, is as me, in here and everything else out there. And we're connected. There's me in here, there's everything else out there. And I'm affected by that. Pleasure, pain, uncertainty. I'm trying to figure it out, negotiate. How is that sense of ground safety going to happen? How long if you're comfortable with that? This is coming into the realm of sense contact, sense consciousness. This is what happens, this is what's happened. Yeah. And within that, the fundamental things me and everything else. And I'm affected by everything else. And I can't really control everything else. Everything else is actually other than me. I don't know how it's going to turn out. So all that stuff out there through sense contact is precarious, possibly delightful, possibly dangerous, possibly deceptive, possibly friendly, possibly hostile. Don't know yet. And that has to be a statement of truth. This is such a, isn't it like that? You can't bluff that. So we come into recognizing this. Chitta in a way is boundless, measureless, but it's included, it's come into sense consciousness, where it's come into an experience where its boundlessness is now bounded, divided into me 
everything else is measured as the bee pit, as everything else bit. And there's need for negotiation because it's precarious. I've definitely, this me bit feels things because of the other. That's the first thing. And the other, for us humans, is largely other people. That's really pretty precarious. Because, you know, trees and hills don't you know, you know a few basic rules, you're safe. <laughs> Humans. Never quite clear about that. So if that has to also be a truth, it's alright to feel a little bit vulnerable, a little bit anxious. That's 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 called clarity here. Because it is that way. They don't have to go into profound panic. But some sense of well, how is this going to be? How am I with her? You know, what does she think of me? What she? I don't know. I really don't know. It could be. It could be painful. Mm. So I better try and be something that she approves of. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm trying to think of things that I think I approve of. I'll be tough, strong, big, smart, intelligent, bright, smart-looking, handsome, all of fantasies. Yeah. And then maybe I'll be okay. So I, you know, all this stuff. This is called the person. <laughs> and I'm kind of exaggerating it, just uh, sort of highlighting it, but elements of that arise, because I just don't know. But I know it could be difficult. And after experience, I find people to recognize, oh, I can affect her or him. Oh dear. Something I say or do might be difficult for her or him, and then I get some nasty feedback. I don't know what she wants. Or what would we do for her? So I guess don't say anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> And they could be difficult too. So I just talk about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> like football or weather or something like that. Maybe that's me. So we start with that, see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with the person. Mm. You know, what will make us feel safe? Perhaps it's to say, I'm a bit anxious now, help me. When we start to recognise, oh, this me thing that happens to me, it's probably happened to her too. <laughs> and him too, you know. Is it, is it so, <laughs> the, the me thing takes itself very personally. Perhaps it's a universal formation that Jitta generates in order to deal with the world of sense contact. Everybody has one a personhood, an individuality, to deal with this sense of the other stuff. You know? So he's got that. So maybe, you know, maybe what's happening for her, to some extent, is the same sort of thing that happens for me. They would say, oh, okay, how is this? And, all right, well, gently, negotiate, how does this work? Yeah. And then something can arise called harmony. And this is uh, another fundamental requirement of citta that gets occluded or lost. So just as a requirement for safety, because then the citta can just naturally expand, not feel threatened, settle. That's a fundamental requirement. Doesn't always happen, but that's what we're looking for. That's what we need. And the person can't provide that. The person provides a facsimile of it. Yeah. By having known things, locked doors, places it goes to where it can feel, okay, they can't get me here, I'm okay here. 
and we kind of define our, our realm. We can't live in a boundless space, we have to live in a very familiar space where we feel more secure, the person. Homeless one, yeah, it's kind of profoundly challenging and also profoundly um, developmental because you can't have your familiar space and your familiar icons so you have to rely more purely on inner ground you have to do that So where you're homeless now. You have to rely on your inner ground, find that. Don't neglect it, don't think it's trivial. It doesn't happen just because people have said you're welcome. It's a fundamental need. And one should not trivialise it or take it for granted or assume it's that easy. But this is recognising it. Second fundamental need for chitta is to experience harmony. So I'm not in dissonance. I'm not getting these disruptive jags and snags and bumps and crashes, you know. Not feeling this horrible sense of being out of sync. Harmony. Notice how you know, when we chant, it, as we come into that, perhaps with a little more confidence, you know, how, whatever the sound is like, whatever the words are like, you know, yeah, secondary, but the fact that we all at least something instinctive in us begins to hit the same sort of notes and wants to flow in, in the same rhythm, the harmony that arises and we're all different people, different voices. You know, women and men, different octaves. And yet harmony can arise. It's not the same as conformity. Conformity is the secondary and the personalised facsimile of harmony. So when you arise in the world of others, and other humans, when you feel different from them, separate from them, how do you find harmony? Well, perhaps you don't. So instead you go for conformity. Different thing altogether. Conformity means I will take on the external appearances or external customs or external protocols, abstract, dead structures, rules, ways of dressing uh, stuff, you know, the external stuff. Take that on, then I'll, I'll experience harmony. No, you won't. Experience conformity. Conformity means you're always looking around. I've got the right, am I doing the right thing? Am I got the right? I'm probably doing something wrong, but maybe people are just too polite to tell me. That's conformity, and there's a rigidity to it. And conformity, as his hardness to it, which does not tolerate difference. And this is where, it, where it's extremist, you know, you get the totalitarian states. And totalitarian states are not just other countries, they are states of mind. The right, the dogma, the belief, the religion, the cultural identity, the nationality, these are totalitarian. There is no room for difference. Or is there room for difference? You know, if you're different, you can be here, but then you're secondary. So this one really plays out big for people, humanised people, in social contact. So here you have lots of issues. America, diversity issues. Ethnic diversity, gender diversity, every kind of diversity. And you know, I'm sure you know the stories of that and the horror of that. 
what I can do. The other, and your other. So, and if you're seen as the other, as the minority other, then it's your job to try to be the same, conform to the majority. But you can't, because your skin's different. So you're always in this secondary state. And a lot of people say, no, you're welcome, that's fine. No, you're not. You know, personally, yeah, but on a chitter level, you know, once they recognise that trace would be, it has to be there for us. And you could say, you know, what are the, when we look at it, you know, what would you say, you know, the supremist and secondary exclude white, male, heterosexual, probably. So if you're not in that, then you've got to kind of try to get in there somehow, or at least conform to it, or be the same as it, or to feel that you're there, you know? And you can't. A harmony is a different thing. Personally, we're always going to be different. There's no way. And you know, one can, every individual can find very reasonable and true reasons why there's something very different about me. I'm the only one out. I can feel that. I'm the only monk. I'm the, the British person, the only monk. You know, I could, yeah. So, I can feel whatever I feel about that, and I can acknowledge that, I can be aware of that, with a bit of practice and time, by returning to ground, and recognising that, and breathing out through that, to come down to the level of realising the level of chitta, Whereas the third sense, the sense of being able to love, to share, to empathise, to experience mutuality, even the mutuality of suffering, instead of no mutuality at all. And for sure, that's where we're not different. We all suffer. As the saying is, we're brothers and sisters in ongoing sickness, suffering and death. Hardly glad tidings, <laughs> but for sure it's real. True. And when we come to that place, stay there and recognise, yeah, also part of our suffering is our sense of differentiation, isolation, what makes me so distinctly the me bit. Yeah. And even though we have a teaching in our time, not self, it doesn't mean there's no such thing. It means that that experience of selfhood, that meanness, is not a fundamental reality. Not something you want to actually take as your leader and authorise and lead from and vindicate and strategize and make supreme or better. It's something you have to acknowledge and see this is the one that needs to be released. And you can't release it unless you acknowledge it. And you can't release it unless you acknowledge that in its awkwardness and its embarrassment and its blustering and whatever it does. And begin to realize, you know, everybody's doing this. If you've got a person, if you're a person, you're doing this at some level or another, at some time or another, oh, oh, you too. Oh, you know. So this is why the first satya, noble truth, dukkha, hardly glad tidings, but it's true. Birth is dukkha. Coming into a personal form is dukkha. Mm. 
So there's a sense of profound sympathy and sensitivity and wish for mutuality as their only real saving saviour. Some of those triggers still can occur, you know. So wearing this stuff, I mean, it's great. In many senses, people respect it and uh, approve it and make gestures towards it. And that's kind of, I, I appreciate, I can acknowledge that. I can also feel acutely embarrassed by it all, you know, on, on some level. And of course, you know, some places you can feel, I can feel distinctly anxious about it. I don't know if I'd really like to walk into a fundamentalist gathering with <laughs> this gear on. But by and large, it's generally received with a sense of either mild astonishment, uh, turning away, or direct um, um, joyful heart. It's still. You know, as it's, as it's edges to it. And probably something you wouldn't really know from your perspective, your side of the antique. Then, you know, British thing is a serf culture. It's a culture of serfs. You know, serfs paid slaves. So the whole country got taken over in the 11th century by a group of, small group of people from another land and basically lock, stock and power were taken away. Local people were either killed, dispossessed or put in surf, surfhood, which means you belong to a to a lord, an aristocrat of some kind. And that continued. So the rulers didn't even speak the language for 300 years. And by that time the language had been moderated and some of the peculiarities in the English language because of that three or four different languages mixing together. So the original language was lost. So, you know, the top, the upper class, they didn't even speak the language of the, of the serfs. And you know, they didn't even, some of them didn't even live there. Uh, and, but the, you know, so it was at least three, four hundred years before the rulers of the country even spoke the language of the people that they were supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that kind of split, you have this thing called class system in Britain. And it's, of course, it's, it's been massively broken down, but it certainly, you know, perpetuates through to a degree into the 20th, 30th to 20th century, whereby particular accents, uh, sub-languages, you know, you were definitely lower. And that meant lots of things. As you can imagine, you know, you know, dismissed, pushed aside, considered brutal or ignorant, uh, liable to be thrown in jail, for killing a rabbit or something for your dinner because you're so poor. Same sort of thing I can imagine, you know, any, any underclass experiences. So that's, that's that bit. Particular accents. And, you know, so that's my route. I'm one of the serfs or the descendants of that. And of course, I personally, I've got no recollection of that until you hear certain voices and then you get the same feeling. One lesser. It's, it's amazing how instinctive it is without any second thought. Certain voice tones, certain body language, and you feel lesser. And you've got to come somehow perform or straighten up to prove yourself as being something. And with a bit of luck, you might be accepted if you say the right, make the right gestures and prove that you're holding yourself a second. You don't, you know, if you're not holding yourself a second, as saying is he doesn't know his place. You don't know your place. <laughs> so that particular statement of bit of British language, somebody doesn't know his place, in other words, he's, he's really <coughs> second if he's trying to 
crew is equal. We can't have that, you know. It doesn't know its place. So most of, even today, most of the predominant ruling structure comes from, you might say, a particular class, and particular schools, particular accents, that will automatically be considered as higher, more respectful, more intelligent, more sensitive, more naturally born to rule and govern. Other people are a bit kind of thick, stupid, you know. And that's kind of breaking down considerably, particularly after the First World War, when the ruling class drove a generation of men to their death for no purpose at all. So there's a you know massive cultural shifts occurring around that. It's just anyway, not to go into that too much, but essentially, you know, it's just recognizing that tonalities, dress code, body language can still trigger these shadow memories of secondary, you've got to prove, you've got to, you've got to, one of us to lift up, you know? So even though now, I'm in some ways I'm holding a hand of aces, you know, I'm white, I'm male, um, heterosexual, I've never been threatened to throw in jail for my sexuality, you know, so I've got to see my hand with aces, you know? but it's not, not quite. And then you know you, you recognise how how distorting that is because you you don't understand how other people could feel secondary. Do you do you sense it yourself, happening to yourself instinctively? And in the real need for mutuality, which means first of all capacity of knowledge sense of uncertainty, anxiety, how are we going to be, how's it going to be. And you know, differentiation occurs around body shape, skin colour, wealth, neighbourhoods, accents, language structures, you know. So all those, maybe some of those pretty, no particular issue just flows through quite naturally. Some place you get a jarring effect. And you can't push through it. So recognize that. And the fundamental quality of jitta is to resonate with that sense of loss, or fear, anxiety, pressure, breathing in, breathing out, fighting your body. Because this is place, this is the value of body meditation, this is the place where you can find harmony, because this is where the personal and the jitta meet, not in sense contact. You're always going to feel different in the world of sense contact, sometimes horribly different, sometimes puzzlingly different. You're always going to feel that. Maybe it's not a big thing for you. Some moment it can be. We feel awkward left out. But where, you know, we have to enter it, practice my personal place. We personally decide to do it. So we have to generally, really strongly recommend it to enter, use the person to start to enter the jitter, which is transpersonal. It's not impersonal, it's transpersonal. It means it definitely has a subjective quality, it definitely generates a personality, but it's something we all do, and we can all sympathise with, and we can all resonate with, and we can all experience the dukkha of that. It's not your problem, it's our dukkha. As we met. You know, so what is it? Are you the oldest? Are you the one who can't sit properly? Are you the sickest? Are you the newest? <laughs> you know, your bit of that. And it's not, you know, when, you, when you're not in it, you can trivialise it. But when you're in it, it certainly gets a grip on you. Dukkha has to be <coughs> understood. Which doesn't mean intellectually understood, but held 
empathically resonating through and the phrase is, you know, this is all of us, some level. And mutual suffering, (laughs) the mutuality of suffering is our access point. Not the mutuality of our success, which is never mutual. The harmony of our suffering, where the, the sense of, you know, let's stop pretending, let's put those things, to, you know, I can, when I recognise that's for you too, I can breathe out. I can feel, strange enough, a sense of some harmony, mutuality, on a jitter level, which doesn't arise because we speak with the same accent, or we look the same, no, that's conformity. Different thing. And, you know, I think I spent quite a few years being a non-conformist to get out of conformity. But non-conformity doesn't take you to harmony. It just takes you to another battle of people you're not going to conform with. You know, got to find somebody to not conform with. (laughs) 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 Got to find a place to not fit into. Without that, I don't feel comfortable. (laughs) We're not rebelling against something or the other. You know, so you take non-conformity identity as a personal identity. It doesn't work either. You know, you go into nature, and she doesn't care whether you conform or not. Nothing to rebel against. So that, that's where nature, of course, is such a such a redeemer, because nature doesn't care about your social personality. You know, and at the same time, you feel this deep resonance with it, because something in us acknowledges life, vitality. At a primary level, you feel, oh, yeah, this is also is part of what I'm with. I'm with the green and the glowing, and the feeding, and the warming, and the, and the fear, and the joy, and the wildness of it all. Some level, there's the that's why it's so. There's the beauty of nature. It touches something where you know we feel ground and safety. For a moment, and another moment, and it's marvellous. And a sense of harmony. Now, as human beings, one of the another fundamental requirement of jitta that gets blocked or confused is the ability to, I say, love or to give. And we want something to rise through and out. We don't want to, Chitta does not want to hoard. It's only in its confused form does it want to grasp and hoard and store. In its unconfused form, it becomes more relaxed. It wants to give itself, it wants to bring forth. It's called the Dana Mudra, the gesture of the Buddha, the open hand. I want to feel that richness rising through when I when something here can arise and stream out. It's fertile, it's potent. Uh, it's intrinsically subjective, it's coming within this, and it's allowed to move out. And you know, giving, loving, joyfulness. It can be loving your work, loving your dog, loving your spouse. Loving your garden, loving your goldfish. <laughs> you know, it says something here can pour out. And if you can't do that, then, you know, what happens? You get uh, different things you get arise. And it tends towards uh, greed. It is, uh, you know, Rather than giving, it's a transaction, I reach out in order to get the good stuff. 
Therefore, I feel rich. My ability to get the good stuff makes me feel rich. Well, how long for? Before you get another one. And more and more and more. Or we do, you know, we give ourselves things that actually can't receive us. It's more like a transaction than a real gift. I'll do this, I'll give this, provided I get this back. Friendship, acceptance, pat on the head. Well, that's really not Dharma. It's, it's another form called doing deals. <laughs> and persons can do that, can't they? You know? Relationships when they're not in tune can be a sort of a strange sense of transactions. So, you know, and certainly I find this my form, you know, I don't do deals. Well, I try to not do deals, sometimes maybe I do find myself doing that. But <coughs> in other words, it's just to give and uh, feel very grateful if that gift can be received. And if it can't, at least I had that, that possibility. But to want something back is the shadow. And certainly with teaching, you know, I've noticed that sense, you know, teaching didn't quite feel disappointed because so-and-so still falling asleep, so-and-so still something <laughs> doing something. Well, you know, do you expect results? Then that's not done, is it? <laughs> And then it's always kind of tainted with that result seeking. No result. We practice with no result. We practice just to experience that flow of it. This is something again, you know, in your own embodiment. <coughs> this is the way the jit and the person meet. So in our embodiment we can find primary ground, we start to experience what's it like to live harmoniously with this body, rather than pushing it, forcing it. Yeah. And taking that sense of harmony deeply, not just into the obvious structures, but into, you know, Sensing the hands, the fingers, when are they feeling not just stuck on the end of my <laughs> arms, but actually really part of the whole thing. So quite a bit of, you know, practice can be just about arriving at a whole body that can experience itself as a wholeness rather than a set of sections. And this means with harmony we have to reach into the painful places that somehow something else wants to shut off and section off and, and say please you know bring your suffering here bring it here wide and soft and open around that rather than trying to get rid of it change it one the white's there just to soften around that edge and that's both attitudinally and even in terms of focus by and large meditators tend to opt for a very tight focus because it gives rise to a sense of precision but actually it tends to lose empathy and a softer focus where we're aware of a broader area of the body with the attitude of including all of it wide and soft and include it all. 
the weird, the painful, and of course, don't forget the healthy, the natural, the rhythmic, the spacious, the grounded. Open one till you feel that the quality of the healthy chitta, yeah, the body where it's not impacted, contracted. That's in the left toe. That's fine. You just widen to down to that place and hold the boundary. And just keep spreading the awareness of the whole thing. It's like a process of allowing these tightened places to be received in something more fluid. And like putting a block of ice in a room, it's going to melt, but it won't. Might suddenly go, but it's likely it will just soften in time. And you get used to being with those places, because there's quite a few of them. The chitta, the body is where the chitta and the person meet, and naturally the body then carries both the potency of the chitta and the pain of the chitta and the difficulty of the person. Carries all of that. You know, difficulty of the person who's been trying to be something, hold something, conform to something, you know, and all the tension that creates gets held in the body. So, you know, in a way, this is where body meditation seems so simple, but it's in fact very profound. This is where the person and the chitta meet. And we have to approach this body very much in its personhood, but from the place of the healthy chitta. Approach the personhood definitely, but not from the person project from the chitta, which means instead of why am I like this, why can't I be like her, how am I going to make it to be as good as he is, why can't I sit like she does, no, no that's the person, no. the chitta places this form, this body, this sense, this experience, where's a place where I can respect be received, Sense the mutuality of suffering, harmonized. Can there be any gesture of giving? May this be well. May this be allowed to be as it is, even at giving, from rather than a clench. May this be allowed to be in the space around my body. May this be allowed to expand as it will. The beauty of this, in its seeming strangeness, is that another kind of quality comes through, which is again a very primary quality of chitta, is experience of pleasure, deep pleasure. Uh, pleasure that's not born of sense contact. Pleasure that's born from the pleasure called the pleasure of Viveka, of not being hooked, of coming out of the tangle. And the pleasure of release. Really this is partial. The moment when there's a little bit of letting go. The moment when the struggle abates. The moment when I'm widened to include a little more. The moment when I turn towards that Dukkha with a generous heart. Mm. In the sense of oh, at least I'm no longer you know, struggling against it or dismissing it. Mm. A phrase that just a little motto to bear in mind if you want to take one one or two pieces from this talk is remember you don't get over anything. You either dismiss it or you process it. You don't get over dukkha. However silly that dukkha is, however childish it is, however in the past it is, you have not got over it until you've experienced it as a noble truth. Until you open to that and you know, received its pain 
it's slightly signal with open-hearted empathy and given my dana is such an important foundation of Buddhism it's not fundraising this is a the quality that we always have and perhaps most primarily we lose it towards ourselves whenever this occurs when there's that real meeting the chitta really meets the person then a little bit of the person is released and it's only a subjective form that's still different from everybody else. It's no longer hard-edged, cut in stone, defended, justified, superior, inferior, anywhere. So the body, the embodiment, is where the chitta and the person meet. And the embodiment experience should not be simplified or trivialized as just you know, a bag of meat you know, with sense organs stuck on it. <laughs> Excuse me. That uh, brief rendition of what you look like. Because <laughs> I look like that too. <laughs> but really, beginning through, through meditation, through cultivation, to recognize this internal resonance, what I call when I'm starting to touch into your energy body, the Buddha really pointing into that. The embodiment has breath energy you know, and breathing, that which resonates through you. It changes when you're anxious, it changes when you're comfortable, it changes when you're happy, it changes when you're you know, driven. So it's very sensitive medium. It's not just the physical sensations and the energy that does the breathing for you. This is one of our primary entries to it. Not everybody can get it because the breathing also suffers, receives the pain of the person and contracts, tightens up around the diaphragm, shuts the throat. It's okay. Let's just go back to the thing. That's even more basic, the ability to balance, standing, finding ground. What is it that most balance? Time, you know, and think, you know, you think standing up's easy, isn't it? You'll be able to do that. Hmm. Just because you sense, sensory body stands up, it looks like you're standing up, doesn't mean your energy body is stood up yet. It's generally contracted up in your head and shoulders. So just because you, you're up here in your head and shoulders, you can feel something down there, a couple of feet down on the ground, you think, yeah, I'm standing up. There it is, I can see those feet down there. No, that's not it. <laughs> just because you can feel a sensation in your feet doesn't mean you're really standing up yet. You'll probably experience yourself as, I'm up here, up in this zone, the top zone, the superior bit where the head is, and there's his feet down there. Well, look at that, he's standing up. <laughs> That's not standing up. That's sitting on top of, <laughs> sitting top of a dead structure. And often that dead structure can be quite shaky. You find yourself toppling over, strangely enough, as you begin to loosen some of that. So standing up is not the same as standing up. You know, because you've really got to feel down into those feet. Imagine those feet are your centre. 
imagine those leaves, oh, you're centre. But that's where intelligence is. Not upstairs looking down at it. So generally people's heads stand up on top of a dead structure. That's not standing, that's called perching. <laughs> so there's a lot to be learned, gained in learning to stand, find your ground, let your feet know it. And then what comes in, as that finds ground, is balance, as the primary sign of what I call a somatic intelligence, body intelligence, energy body, different language. Where's that? It's everywhere, because you can't track it in the sense fields. It affects them, but you can't really track it as it is in my belly, is it? No, it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. It's somehow, you have to have a different map of your body, which is a sense of the center, the core, which is essentially quite poised, balanced, very quiet, still. And around it, there's a range of peripheries, like circles of sensitivity that can radiate, can deflect, can contract, can reach out, can expand. Just as when we feel frightened, it suddenly contracts. When we feel love, it expands. You know, isn't that the truth? And it even comes up through your skin. When you feel joyful and happy and receive people, you can feel yourself spreading and widening. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps when you're with nature, opens and winds. Now it can tighten and contract when everyone's looking at you. You feel ashamed or difficult. Definitely a, a powerful experience. It's not to do with the sensory body, though it's definitely can be affected by the sense body. It's not in a particular location, it's everywhere. Its center is this primary balance which has a quality of profound silence to it. Not silence, not dead silence, but live silence. Doesn't make sense in sensory terms. These are metaphors. It's the silence of the will. There's nothing you have to do but stay tuned in. Oh, just be align yourself to that. And as that arrives, you begin to sense the peripheries. I'm so wide. I'm slightly tense. My experience of embodiment is a little bit up rather than down. Can that awareness of that soften and widen to allow that to find its fullness? Sometimes, you know, it's the other way around, of course, you need the boundary, the sense of safe space in order to not be dealing with issues out on the edges of your experience. You know, to feel comfortable enough to be able to, okay, let's settle now and come into the core, the true core, being now, oh, what's around me? It's safe, it's comfortable, it's easeful, and it begins to become subtly delightful, subtly pleasurable. Not because of sense contact, because of the innate radiance of chitta in this form. This is what bodies are really for in the stomach practice. Personal mind is so difficult and complicated. Personal body is difficult, not so complicated. Mm-hmm. You can get through there. Sitting, standing, reclining, walking. Mm-hmm. 